Hey there, everyone. From beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses. No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers while watching your videos to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Connexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at connexus.com. That's K-E-N-X-U-S dot com. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Corey Tacchini, founder and CEO of Before the Movie, but also a member of the Tacchini family that is three generations deep in the independent movie theater business. Corey shares some great stories of his family's history, dating back to 1924 and taking us all the way through the current challenges that exhibitors are facing with the pandemic. I really enjoyed my time with Corey and I hope you will too. So here's Corey. Magic, oh, you have here. special uh-huh. sounds and everything. Look at that. You know, you know who you sound like? You sound Ooh. like John Goodman. You know what? I, you know how many times I hear that? You sound exactly like John Goodman, like That's, Sully. It's so funny because I can tell you, I was at a meeting in LA with one of the studios and there was like 15 of us sitting around and all of a sudden the guy goes, I figured it out. You sound just like John Goodman. Oh and my gosh, you the do. The guys <laughs> that was with, were with me started laughing. So I told you, I told you. It's pretty impressive, man. You got another career right there for you. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to do a voiceover for Pixar. Yeah. Perfect. It worked out pretty well for him. Would you say you were born into the old school exhibition portion of the movie business? I would say, yeah. You grew up in the business, no? Oh, yeah. My grandfather built the first talkie theater in the county I grew up in in 1924. He actually was a developer, contractor. He'd come out from Italy and then he went, uh, ended up settling in a little town called Sebastopol, California. And he developed a lot of that town, a lot of the subdivisions and stuff, just came over here basically with nothing and worked his tail off and built these subdivisions. And a couple of guys came to him. We think they were mafia and said, hey, we want you to build us a theater in Santa Rosa. So he built the theater within a few months. They went broke. So he took over the theater and ended up putting sound in it. Kind of an accidental theater owner. And then he stayed uh, with it. And, uh, and then my dad, you know, when he was about 18 or 19, got in and got the Annerley Theater in Sebastopol with his uh, his nephew. 
And they uh, ran that theater for a while. And then my dad, you know, grew, did the kind of the same thing my grandfather did, had these, you know, little single screens. This is how they started, where I'd say big single screens up and down the coast, these old theaters. And then, you know, eventually grew from there. Your grandfather came from where in Italy? He came from right next to Luca, a little town or a little village called Porcari. Where is this in the boots? Tell, tell, tell well, me where, where uh, is it, this? It is in Tuscany. Oh, Toscana. So, yeah, you know, uh, uh, Florence, uh, Pisa. Yes, um, Siena. You know, the, Luca, the, the great walled city. Luca is like, let's see, it would be like going from uh, Thousand Oaks to uh, Westlake Village. It's close. It was like very six, close. seven miles. Porcari was six, seven miles from Luca. Not very far. Well, why did your grandfather go to Sebastopol? What was in Sebastopol? I don't know. You know, he had, he came out with another family member and one settled in San Francisco and got in the grocery business produce. And then my, my grandfather came up and he was he worked with his hands. He was a builder and he ended up in Sebastopol. Um, and I don't think they ever got along, those two, the two brothers. And so he ended up here, got married to my grandmother was from Pisa. They came out here and they were young. You know, they went to Ellis Island and then ended up over here. Didn't change the family name? Tokini? No. 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 They got that they got that part he right. He used to go back to the village when he after he, you know, he was a success here. He went back he used to bring money back to Porcari and for the villagers. He was, so he'd make trips back there and bring money and take care of them, you know. He, oh, there's great stories. I've been back there, and a guy, a friend of ours, brought us around. You know, you can go to the church where his, re- his name's in the registry. You listen to the old timers, and they said, oh, he was a, you know, they, they loved him. Anybody yeah. that came here was able to get out and then come back and take care of them. We're basically heroes. All right, so we're in Sebastopol, and he builds a theater for these guys. It goes belly up. And he's in the exhibition business. And he it's takes a, over a theater. Yeah. Takes over a theater. Single screen, Corey, how many seats? Yeah, that at that time, a single screen, I don't know. I'm guessing it probably had, you know, maybe four or 500. Pretty big. And is it one of the old school opulent theaters with it, 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 a real show place or is it not? Pretty. I mean, for the time, there were, you know, there were the vaudevillian ones that did, you know, also did plays and right, organ right, and all that. It wasn't right, one of those, but right. it was an old time theater. Uh, that building is still there. It's used different stuff. In fact, it says it's the, the Tokini building. Really? Yeah, in Santa Rosa. And then, you know, my dad built a theater there in basically in my grandfather's honor, called it the Roxy, which is what the the theater was called in the 20s and it's a big that's a 14 screen two-story monster downtown not on the site where the other one was but not far away but in tribute to your grandfather your, your yeah, father did that my, yes and so as an ind- so did they start Corey as true independence or were they affiliated with with a studio at that point how did no no they were they were indie they were independent they were on their own uh, other guys like richard mann uh, who owned theaters very similar, these little theaters up and down the coast and in the valley. Is that you know, man like, of the man's Chinese? Different. Different, different man. Okay. Yeah. Just a guy that had been around for, you know, a long time. And I grew up, you know, there was the Sayufi boys, which was Century, uh, the Aeneas, who were part of United Artists, the Nafis, rather, and the Aeneas, which were related. In fact, the Nafis are related to Sayufis. It's a funny business. It looks really big, 
but it really isn't. It seems big if you're coming from the outside, but it's a very, we call it incestuous business. Everybody seems to know everybody or they're related or, you know, so it's a small business. If you say you're going to do something, you need to do it. You, you know, if you do the, the handshake still, still exists in this business. Even to this day? Yeah. Not obviously not quite as much. It's such right. a litigious society that right. you get everything on paper, but basically um, I have deals. I have a few circuits that basically it's handshake. You know, I just try to do what we say we're going to do. And uh, if we can't, you know, we're, we're in constant communication. with. Okay. So this family run business, and it seems like they're, they're original families, that lineage can be traced to present day where we're in the middle of this pandemic. We've heard unprecedented again and again and again, your grandfather opened on the other side of World War One, before not too much before the depression. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I can tell you, I've had people come up to me in Santa Rosa saying, "You know, I your grandfather used to give me, you know, a suit. I'd go clean the windows or clean the poster windows or whatever at the theater, and he'd give me a suit or give him clothes. That's the way they did it. They bartered. You know, he did. They did things. Nobody had money. That's how you know they'd tell me it, it's the weirdest thing. They would just tell me, yeah, well, he would give me clothing or something. And I'd help work at the theater. I mean, he opens Corey in pretty decent times, but obviously, we already know these guys who started it went bust. Your grandfather takes it over. Depression hits. Nobody does have money, as I understand. You imagine not having five or six cents to go to the movies, right? I mean, this is. I mean, I thought it was coming uh, with us here. I was preparing the hotel that I was that I was running. We were preparing a soup kitchen setup, you know, for the community because yeah. if you remember, nobody knew how how well the supply chain would hold. I mean, it was it was pretty funky for a while. Who and knew we were going to run out of toilet paper? Toilet paper, exactly. But when all the, the meat processing plants were uh, were just getting crushed with COVID oh. outbreaks, and and so people, okay, well, if we if we don't have guys bringing in the crops and we don't have guys working in the processing plants, how are we getting food? Okay, so we go back, we go back almost a uh, hundred years. Did your grandfather think of just getting out of the theater business, but or was it it was viable even through the depression? I can't tell you that because I never had a specific conversation with him about that. But they he stayed in it and worked it. Now, he was also, remember, he was also building homes. But back then, during the Depression, I don't know, you know, how many homes and, uh, you know, he had this property because he ended up at somehow at some point gathering enough wealth where he could buy this property and build a subdivision or build so many houses, buy some more property, build so many. You know, it's funny, even during tough times, theaters have always excelled and done well because people still need an escape and really for the money isn't as bad now it's getting it's it's pricier now but everything's relative but it's pricier now but they're trying to deliver these bigger films you know they're, they're trying to make the the studios want these films to be tentpole pictures to be big pictures evenings out they have gone up the pricing has gone up but even in tough times theaters seem to do well now, with COVID, obviously, it's a little different. You know, I, I tell you, they still have not had one case worldwide traced back to a movie theater. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And there's the theaters that have been open, China and other places, and not one that they've definitively traced back to a movie theater. Because people, if you think about it, are generally quiet. They're facing forward. They're facing the same direction watching a movie. Plus, they've put in, you know, ahead of time, there's spacing requirements. And they've done stuff with the ventilation in most of these places. They have what's called cinema safe. So they're doing, taking all the protocols. But in a lot of cases, like in California, the governor, the governor never gave them a chance to 
open. And they were sued in many states saying, you show me, we want to see some kind of evidence, some scientific evidence that, that you're at risk when you go to a theater or higher risk when you go to a theater as opposed to going to, to Walmart or Target or wherever else, these essential, in quote, businesses, right? So they got the one theater. And then what makes your grandfather go, you know what? This is a pretty good business. Does, is, I'll does, go buy another one. Is that or I'll build another one? Is that or what he built another one? It? Most of the cases, I don't know if he built the Anley. He might have built the Anley in Spessible. I have to look that up. But most of these cases, these theaters were. Remember, this this was a period of time. So when you start getting into the 30s and 40s and 50s, he was buying these theaters. He'd find these little, you know, one horse town and there'd be a single screen theater and maybe four or five thousand people in the town or three or five, and it was the hub of the town back then the right. movie theater was and to some extent it still is today it is the place that people go to gather have a, a um you know a communal movement on a movie they sit there and where everything graduates at the same time they're experiencing it all together at the same time so that still holds true in those days that was it you were a long way away from the next town so town you were in if that that local movie theater was your hub it employed your friends your families your neighbors everybody knew everybody you saw each other all the time there not not only that Corey, but i mean i remember the stories from my parents and grandparents where you were a kid you were dropped off at nine in the morning and you were picked up at maybe five in the evening and you spent the entire day watching the cartoons, the serials, the West, the whole, I mean, you were, if that was a dollar, it would, was a ton of money. You were in that theater all day long and they were the first places many times that were air conditioned. So that was the only place that you could go to cool off. Plus there were big barns. They didn't get real hot. Some of these theaters are tubes from the the ones they built in the seventies and they're small inside. These things were a lot of them were mausoleums. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember fondly the RKO Keith's and main street flushing in New York. And it was, it was a vaudeville house Corey, And it was extraordinary. Even when I was a kid, Still extraordinary, still beautiful. Developer came in and gutted it overnight. Totally illegal, but now it's gone forever. And Marx Brothers had played there, you know, had a, a lot of the famous vaudeville acts that went through there. And and it was it was the gathering place for the community, as you said. So so now you, you know, you mentioned to a man earlier. Man's yeah, yeah, yeah. Chinese man's Chinese in yeah. LA. Yeah. That theater what that was Ted Mann, who was married to Rhonda Fleming. A famous, I mean, I'll say B actress, but but well known at okay. the time in her day. In fact, I think Rhonda's still alive. Ted passed away, but Ted's grandson is Johnny Brendan. I have his theaters. That, so when I say it's incestuous, everybody's connected. Johnny Brendan has eight or nine locations throughout California, uh, Arizona, and Nevada. He has the Palms Casino, the theater in there as well. And we do their pre-shows and you know do uh, produce all the stuff that is in between the movies for them. And Johnny was. Ted's grandson and Rhonda and him are still close. It stays in the family or pretty or pretty damn close to the family. Yeah. Huh? yeah. Okay, so so now so this scales this scales and you and you show up. Are you an usher? Do you work the, oh. the concession stand? What do you, what do you do? I would run the projection booth. Strike the I was twelve years old. I was running the projection booth. My mother used to give my dad fits. You can't let him, those are dangerous, those Carbon arcs. You carbon know, arc, yeah. You were firing off carbon arcs, so sometimes mirrors would explode. You know, I'd run the projection booth, go downstairs, help my dad. You know, I'd sell it. And I got paid, I remember at one point, he got paid a dollar thirty-five an hour, and he told my mom, he's lucky he's getting anything. That's right. <laughs> Old school. I like it. <laughs> I give him a roof over his head, damn it. That's right. But, so but you, you know what? Man, that's where we learned, right? Yeah, you grew up in the theater. There was a, 
There was a, a beautiful theater that was down the street from my house, Corey in Queens, that had been, there was a beautiful, the Mayfair Theater Art Deco with uh, the two projector system. It had been turned into a porn theater in the 70s, yeah. still built out and beautiful. And I used to go and hang out with a projectionist and he taught me, he taught me I still remember the, the dowser and the pedals oh, on the yeah. floor and the carbon arcs and the buckets full of the spent carbon and exciter lamp. The exciter, the, yeah, the whole deal. The, the soundtrack. Yes, you had a splice of Corey and the, he, they were using these mirror. You couldn't look at the arc, right? It, it, you, yeah. So he bounced the light onto the wall. He, they had these two Sharpie marks on the wall and that's yeah. how you crank the arc uh, you crank the carbon together right to get the proper to get the proper arc and then have you seen mank yet have you seen the movie mank about herman mankowitz have you seen that no 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 oh, oh it's really cool one of the one of the one of the sort of the, the cool things that i geek out over this it's really beautiful they did it in black and white is that even though it's a netflix original they put projectionist cues in the top right hand corner yeah just for old, just to make you, Give it you the effect. Take, yeah, yeah, just to take it back. So to give you an idea, I ran, I was running a theater in the seventies for my dad and I was young. The way they paid you is he said, okay, well, I'm going to give you a house allowance. This is what it costs to run the theater. You get your payroll and everything. And then what's left over you get. So I would clean the theater. So it was great until you had a movie like Star Wars. We opened Star Wars in San Carlos and I was running the Laurel Theater. I ran the theater. So we'd open up at 10 o'clock in the morning or whatever. And it'd be, this was a single screen, 900 seat theater. And we'd run it all day long. So I'd manage the floor. I'd run the projectors. I would do at that time. We would splice three reels together, 6,000 feet of film on each one. We'd splice them. So the movie fit on these two big reels and there's one changeover. I could do that changeover just by audio. I didn't even have to look at the, I ran it over 657 times. Yeah. I, I should wait. I take that back. I saw it. <laughs> yeah, right. It ran for weeks. I saw it. I had marks on the wall. Right. Of how many times I could recite the entire movie of Star Wars. And, and sold out every show just about. Pretty, I mean, for a long time. But right. then I would go at night and I would clean the theater, which would take me four or five hours because I was trying to keep as much money as I could. I couldn't go over this house allowance. It's, it wasn't a great way to run it because I was dead tired, man. It almost killed me. Basically, I ran that theater. I reported to the, at that time, my dad's office and I ran that theater. And, you know, over time I've run other theaters, but eventually what happened was I left, I got out of the business um, and, you know, got into sales and, uh, ended up getting into software and ended up starting a software with a company with a guy sold it, was pretty lucky on it. And I had been estranged from my dad for probably not estranged. We didn't get along. I just didn't see him because I was living in Seattle. He was down here. And, uh, eventually I went, said, Hey, I'm going to sell the house here and come back to work with you. I had money in the bank at the time. Cause I was able to save from my software days and went back, took over his company Oh, oh, at, once I went back, I did marketing and then uh, he, they promoted me. I ran that company. At that time, we had 10, 12 locations, including Camarillo and Oxnard, which we opened a week apart. I found that the Camarillo Theater was an old UA theater and made a deal, uh, started negotiating a deal with them while we were building a theater already and almost getting done, complete, completing construction in Oxnard, which is downtown on 14 screen. And we ended up opening those two theaters a week apart. <laughs> And then uh, after a while, you know, I, he wasn't building anymore. I mean, things had kind of taken a law. And I came to him one day and said, I think I'm going to start my own company. And he said, oh, good, because he figured, you know, at that time he was paying me 80000 a year 
lot of, <laughs> lot of money. Wasn't sounds like a lot was not a lot. Right, right enough of what you were doing. Yeah, uh, he thought, oh, I'm going to get off this eighty grand. I'll even give you an extra month pay. You could start your own. So what I did is I started the advertising. He was my first client. I started before the movie, which is we basically lease the time between movies. We sell ads. We create content. We do the red carpet interviews, the star interviews, and stuff, which we have over three hundred and something in the can that we've done with you can basically every star in the world. So in April of 2008, I started this company and then we ended up hitting Inc. Magazine's fastest growing five, uh, the top 5,000 fastest growing privately held companies in the country five straight years, which not a lot of companies have done that. That's not amount of money. It's percentage of growth every year. You saw the opportunity because you had grown up in the business and you were just now, did you keep a construction arm to, to the family business? Were you guys still building, physically building the theaters or you were, you were buying, just buying and, and, and having them built for you at that point? Well, we would be, we would negotiate, you know, long-term leases, either take over existing buildings, convert them into multi-screen theaters or build from the ground up. But having a, you know, developer, we didn't do it. Right. Uh, right. We would just you know, work the lease. We don't own a lot of dirt, didn't own a lot of dirt. We had some, we own some, but most of them were long-term, you know, triple net leases. Uh, so then you saw the opportunity for before the movie Corb was anyone, was anyone doing this at this point in two, in, in 08, was there anybody who was, who was doing anything like this, this, this pre-roll entertainment? There were companies, Val Morgan, Screen Vision, NCM had come into to play, uh, which is basically, uh, you know, the big three, AMC, Regal, Cinemark, put this company together. Call, and they, they're the same ones that did Fandango. And, but they, at that time, it was analog. And we've actually had, I believe, the first complete digital show. And it, it, at that time, it was on a DVD. I called it Cinema, uh, Back in a magazine it would just it would run this dvd from start to finish and it would time it be 20 minutes right so it would start and and i had this software we developed and we called it a police officer a cop and what it would do is it tell the big projector when to shut off and the little one when to go on so it was just basically a thing that knew when when the big one went off it would start the little one so we'd time it to be that dvd to be as long as the intermission call it a half hour so we'd time it to be 30 minutes where we'd have 10 minutes of fluff or whatever you know music and whatever and then it would come in on the 20 you know for the remaining 20 minutes up until showtime and we'd produce this thing that was called back row cinema magazine was just content and advertising mixed in and no one was doing that digital version at that point Corey. they were all talking about it. i couldn't figure out why we were the last industry to go digital to be honest with you it's easier to protect the assets than it is using film uh i just thought well geez you know at some point they got to go digital and they did they were there was talk about it at the time i had talked to screen vision who's the largest by screen count in terms of what we do and they said well you know we're not going to they were, even, they were obviously telling me a fib because i was a competitor but i said well are you guys going to go digital no we're not going to do it so we had made plans to do that we bought little projectors at the time these little presentation projectors with 3500 lumen 4000 lumen projectors and then we'd you know get the throw or throw them onto the screen and it would run a dvd to do that now everything i produce is what we call jpeg 2000 it's high def it goes onto the screen it's the same as the way the films come and we play in those big projectors but you have to be mpaa compliant in order to get on those projectors. So we produce what we call DCP, di digital cinema packages. Um, so we produce our ads that way, our interviews that way and everything. So they start out as smaller files and then they're 
small, when I say smaller files, they're HD and everything, but then they've got to be manipulated by software to get them to become MPAA compliant, to fill the whole 40 foot screen and like that. When you produce a piece of content, let's say it's a 30 minute piece end to end, uh, is that uploaded then to the local cinema or to a home office and then distributed because now all digital, right? It's it, it's, it's all digital, but the way it gets there is a number of ways. There, there's some technology. The problem is when you create DCP and you're talking about videos now too, they, the longer it is, the bigger that file gets. Hmm. So if you're creating one uh, and so it's hard to get it there via the internet. Now we, we can, we're doing, we have some, they have to have speed on the other end too, in order to pull it down. Basically I contract with Technicolor and they'll ship my, my national ads. My national ads can change, can change weekly, whereas my local stuff is a monthly. I have a local show that's monthly and then national ads that get thrown in and they can change weekly. And those are shipped to the uh, theaters via a deal with Technicolor. Or there's a second one, or we do it from here, from my corporate office where we have our studio and everything. We'll produce it and then FedEx it out so it gets there overnight. I can tell you that within the next year, most of that stuff will be obsolete. We'll be doing everything from the cloud. The problem is I deal with a lot of independent small theaters in the middle of nowhere. Uh, they, they don't have the best internet connections. In those cases, we'll still be shipping them. I would think bandwidth is still an issue. Tell me, tell me, or or tell us, Corey. What so what does that look like? What is Technicolor actually shipping? Little thumb drives. That so that physically gets FedExed overnight to a to a theater. Yeah, basically they handle it because what they do is they take the master files that we send. In a nutshell, national ads are a little different than local. Local ads are that ad has to play on all screens, any rating, any time. Whereas national ads, the way we sell it is by rating. It has nothing to do with the ad itself being an R-rated ad or a PG-13 ad. It is strictly because they know those are the movies that are out. They watch that, too. So the agencies know that PG-13, I know that there's going to be excellent these movies that I want to be on front of. So I want to buy. So we, we, when we ship it to the theater, we ship this ad goes on G, this ad goes on all PG 13, this ad goes on all R. So when they ship, they know where those are playing based on rating. It's confusing. What happens is it, you need somebody to help you fulfill that. Otherwise I'd have my 30 computers here doing nothing but rendering shows for each of those ratings. Whereas Technicolor can do it. They have the equipment, they have the facilities. That's why we hire them. So we upload, here's what we're going to do here's the ads here's the rating system and then they do it ship them from there and they're gone right no i got that and then technicolor is physically shipping a also a thumb drive Corey, to the theater or what is going from yeah. technical that's what it's they're a sending thumb drive. it's ours it has our name it'll say before the movie on the thumb drive goes out to them and then that just gets popped into they, some console they, that's they, the control they put it in there what we call theater management system right. or server if right. say it's got multi-screens seven eight screens ten screens whatever goes into their and then from that server it goes to each individual auditorium depending on what movie's playing there on on that auditorium man the innovation i remember when i was in usher the the platter systems were just coming oh, in Corey, my God. and that was you know i was an usher for ua and i've walked into theaters projection booth on a platter system where the thing was running. I went downstairs to help somebody at the snack bar. I come back and there's, you know, 5,000 feet of film on the floor. (laughs) That's a mile worth of film just in a big circle tied up all around the sprockets and I'm going, oh, geez. Yeah, they had, uh, they had a system and I don't know how many, it was five. This was also an old, old vaudeville theater in Queens and Bayside, Queens that was converted and I'm not sure what we were, maybe Stripes. We were running Stripes, Bill Murray Stripes, which is a huge hit. I I saw that seven 
700 times. With the plotter system, Corey, correct me if I'm wrong, we, they would run it from the, the just the same piece of film across theaters. So they ran it from one off of one machine and it was, God, I remember going across the ceiling to, you know, from yeah, theater one into theater two. Yeah. So you would have it, it would start here yep. and in the theater over there next door where you'd tail it to, right. it might be uh, 20 seconds behind or whatever. That way they could run multiple auditoriums with one print. Right. That's what we did. And it broke. Yeah. And so we took the, it yeah. took down down two theaters. I had a mutiny on my hands and I was trying to explain. And people were, I mean, if they had to, if they had rotten fruit, they would have thrown it at me. I got up in front yeah. of a, you know, a crowd of people trying to explain the glorious technology. Uh, the film broke between <laughs> auditorium one and auditorium two. It's called the platter system, folks. Sit down. So now you start your business and you got traction right away. You, you, you have this great growth. There's competition in the marketplace, but Sounds like you found a niche with the indie operators. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And we have about 175 locations, a little over 1,100 screens. We're the third largest in screen count. But there's, you know, you have Spotlight Cinema Networks, Us, Screen Vision, National Cinemedia. Those are the four larger ones. Of the four, you got to understand, we're we're just a blip compared to, you know, Screen Vision and, and NCM. But we serve a purpose and, and, and we're not just aggregators. We actually physically sell. We have a staff that sells. Uh, we produce the ads. We have green screens, 4K cameras, you know, teleprompters, everything. We totally self-contained in the studio. I can shoot anything in there. So capa, somewhat capital intensive in that you have to have this, this production facility set up for this original content and do you do you guys then write produce direct cast the shows i mean you're a mini studio in a sense no most of the work we do for for let's say advertisers and whatnot are motion graphic spots it was capital intensive in that we have great software we are constantly investing in software and then in terms of the studio it was either pay a lot of taxes one year or we just invested back in the business i'm just curious is there a branded before the movie show with your host Corey Dakini or something like that yeah and, and, and no we don't do a host but yeah it is branded but what we try to do when we uh, do a circuit an independent circuit or an independent theater is brand the show to look like them not like us you'll see branding from before the movie on there and the content we produce and that stuff but the show itself when you walk in it should feel like that theater their website are certain colors there's this and that they, and, and so it's it's designed around them to be theirs not mine uh, having said that we produce the ferguson files which are the star interviews and stuff so they'll see it in their show but, but there, i have another show in phoenix or at scottsdale at a movie theater that show will feel like theirs but it'll have the same interview segment where do you have your biggest presence Corey? is there a sweet spot market for you or is it fairly broad it's pretty broad i mean i have more theaters in michigan so i've, I've covered in michigan i have uh, you know, obviously, Northern California, Southern California. I mean, we're it's where we started, so we have a lot here. Nevada, we're pretty much all over. But I would say my biggest circuits and locations are between California and Nevada, and include Arizona in there as well. Did you say fourteen hundred screens before? How many? Eleven hundred and. I have to see post COVID. I don't know how many are actually. I'm feeling I felt fourteen hundred. I'm seeing growth, Corey. So I'm seeing you go from eleven hundred to fourteen hundred. So right now, are you kind of mothballed? Where where are you with this? Are you are you providing any content for any of your accounts open now? Yeah, we have probably forty percent of our locations are open out in smaller communities uh, in other states, but it's coming around. It's 
you can feel it. It's starting to come. I can see that the attendance numbers are going up. It's it's slight. Yeah. Last year, we played to almost 30 million people. And, and when I say last year, I meant in 19. In 20, it was about 500,000. Mm. So it tells you the difference because everybody was shut down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but of course. We, you know, we stayed in. We got a PPP, uh, actually two of them. Kept most of our people hired up until about three months ago. And we're down to about nine people here from 26. But we'll bring those back as we go. We'll bring people back. Uh, and we had to do what we had to do to stay alive and, and keep our theaters paid. So we've been producing stuff during this pandemic. You know, why, you know, be safe, stand six feet apart. Oh, we've been producing special ads and trying to keep people, the theater on people's minds. So we've been sending that, been playing all around, not only the country, but different parts of the world. And we've given it to them free. We produced it free. We made it available on LinkedIn and other sites. So these theaters could, you know, pull it down. A couple of big circuits that said, hey, can you, you know, brand that for me? Okay. So we make a few bucks branding it for them, but, but it's basically the same spot because we owe it to the industry. We, we have to do what we can to help the industry because if we don't, it's not going to be here. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that spirit. Corey, break down for me a l- just the fundamentals of the model. So do you, bu- I think you mentioned this before. Do you buy the time and then you go ahead and resell it? You make it on the on the margin or what is the actual business model? I mean, we have, so the theater has runs so many movies a day in each screen between those movies. That's the time we negotiate with them. And the, and basically it is, they get a rev share. It's not anything in rocket science. We sell it. We produce it. The, the, we sell the ads. We, we bill, we collect, we pay them. We send statements to them so they know uh, and they see what, what's been done. And they and basically, they're giving us that time for a rev share. Pretty simple. And then and that's a percentage. And there's different factors that go into that. But we try to do is provide a minimum guarantee of a certain amount uh, versus the, the larger amount, which would, would be whatever the percentage is. Right. So you're, you're giving uh, to the theater owner a minimum guarantee on their rev share. On the other side, on your sell side, you're going to say, I own a dry cleaners, local guy, and you're going to say, hey, Jeff, we're going to get you in front of minimum X amount of eyeballs. Take a theater like Camarillo. Okay, we're going to play to 570,000 people this year. Let's just use a normal year or whatever it is, yeah. 550,000. So there's 11 screens we divide. I would tell you, you know, you're going to be on all 11 screens. And my question to you would be, to that business would be, if you had, if I gave you 15 seconds or 30 seconds in front of 500,000 people and you were on stage, what would you say about your business? What are key points? What differentiates your cleaning, dry cleaning service from the next door, or from the other mother guy? It's pretty powerful. When you think you have a captive audience looking at you and there's going to be 550,000 people, basically, if you're on for the year, that's how many you're going to play in front of or 525, whatever that number is. From your gonna, community, which is yes, from, right? your community, from your community, which is significant. There are people that you know them, you see them at the market, you probably, they employ your kids at the theater, who knows, you know, right. because it's not like radio where you're using a shotgun approach. This is pinpointed. This is your community. So you hit that on the head um, and it's powerful. I've seen some ads, these people put together and I look and go, the ad doesn't say anything. They'll have it. Oh, we're right behind Target. Well, are you advertising Target or are you? you know? and, and this has got to be tricky because you're you're dealing with mom and pops who don't have the bandwidth, maybe not the sophistication, and like maybe it's with a, a begrudging desire. Is they they want to do something, but they don't know what, and so that's that's got to be like dragging the horse to water sometimes. Huh? Yeah, and you just got to educate them and, and try to share with them and get them to imagine. I mean, it's how many thousands times the size of your business card. Think about it; it's a forty foot screen. In some cases, I have theaters now that have. 100-foot screens, 80-foot screens. That's massive. You're bullish on the return of this business 
right? Fingers crossed, toes crossed that this business comes back. People will want to get out again once vaccines are in arms, as you said earlier. You're bullish on this? I am bullish on it. They're, I mean, they're already going back. I mean, even in other countries, they're having record you know, people have been waiting. So I don't worry about that. I worry more about content. When is the content coming? They push the content. They push the content. I think we'll have a decent April. I think uh, May, June, it starts to pick up. Uh, and next, I think over the holidays next year, is gonna should be huge. They've got all this film waiting to go that they've been pushing off. The James Bond movie, all these different movies that they've been delaying, not not putting them on streaming like Warner Brothers did, but but delaying these things. And eventually, when that stuff starts to, to hit, we're going to have a backlog of pictures, but not only pictures, tentpole pictures, too. Yeah. Big pictures. Yeah. So. And, and, and the pent-up desire will be there, too. You know what I wanted to ask you, Corey? So you were talking about the mom-and-pop a- advertising. When you do the Ferguson files or pieces like that, how is is that just a gimme? Is that just is that put in as, uh, not to be condescending, but as filler? Or how, how are you making money? Do you charge for that? We don't charge for it, but what will happen now that it's gained a lot of traction and uh, it's going to be all over IMDb and Redbox and BestBuy.com, uh, what will happen is advertisers in any regional or local market may want to sponsor it. In other words, we want to be in front of that on every week, you know, every month that it comes out, every new episode. We want, we want it to be sponsored by XYZ. So we'll get paid for that. We've been shooting the show for about a year and a half, plus the interviews we did 15 years ago, like with Robin Williams and 10 years ago and that kind of stuff, because uh, those are cool because now those are edited into what we call the rewind section. So those can be sponsored by or brought to you by a specific regional or local business. Right, right. And so you've produced this and in a sense, it's evergreen. I mean, an interview with Robin Williams is still entertaining, right? Who's not going to want to see him? Yeah, still good. Billy Crystal, uh, Meg Ryan. Still good stuff, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be, I mean, if I was sitting there, I would be entertained. Then I go, hey, before the movie, I know this guy. And now everybody, everybody who's listening also knows this guy. So I want to thank you, Corey Tacchini, for hanging out with me for a little while and sharing some of your family history. I know we just scratched the surface a bit on the on the Takini origin story, but we learned that the the exhibition side of the of the movie business is still very much family oriented or family driven, and and that um, your world is hyper hyper local. I mean, these are independent operators in our communities, and they're going to need everybody's support for all of us to get back up on our feet. So I that's appreciate right. And, that. and remember, these these most of these theaters give back to the communities they serve anyway. So it's just all a big circle, man. We got to help them, and and uh, they'll be back. Trust me, they'll be back. Corey Takini, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it, and stay safe. We'll see you before the movie. All right, man. Take care of yourself. That does it for today's episode with Corey Tacchini. I hope you enjoyed hanging out with him as much as I did. A through line I think we can all take from this is how important family and community always are, but especially how important family and community are right now as we move or continue to move through the pandemic. Until next time, stay safe. And remember, you can find No Bed of Roses wherever you find fine podcasts. Thanks and see you soon. Bye.